Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Puritan alchemists founded America. It sounds like bad fiction, but it's fact. As befits a young republic, the history of the earliest origins of American metaphysical religion amounts to a long list of extraordinary characters, daring experiments, and unlikely friendships. We'll meet alchemists who persecuted witches, alchemists who were governors, and several alchemists who served as presidents of the first American colleges. The community of alchemists at home and abroad was in constant touch with each other, eagerly exchanging techniques, results, and useful writing published and unpublished. At the heart of this vital cosmopolitan movement for cultural evolution were the intelligencers, discerning men, who were so respected they became gatekeepers. 
By exchanging letters, sometimes in secret codes, samples and books with fellow seekers of knowledge across continents and oceans, they became the internet hubs of their day. If a valuable discovery was made off in a far land, news of it would soon be all over the world thanks to the intelligencers. As John Butler wrote, quote, American colonists had an ambivalent relationship with Christian congregations. After about 1650, even in New England, only about one-third of all adults ever belonged to a church. The rate was lower in the Middle and Southern colonies, and on the eve of the American Revolution, only about 15% of all the colonists probably belonged to any church. In 1687, New York Governor Thomas Dongan wrote that the settlers were usually expressed no religious sentiment at all, or when they did, they entertained wildly unorthodox religious opinions. Two years before the Salem trials, Cotton Mather was so concerned about the number of settlers who used occult techniques for curing illnesses and settling quarrels that he described the Christian defense against them in occult terms as amulets so readers could more easily understand them. What were these wildly unorthodox beliefs? John Butler continues, quote, American colonists were indeed religious, but many resorted to occult and magical practices unacceptable to most Christian clergymen and lawmakers, end quote. Lewis Morris, a politician from New Jersey, wrote in 1702 about his constituents, quote, except in two or three towns, there is no face of any public worship of any sort, but people live mean like Indians, end quote. The traveling Anglican minister Charles Woodmason reported that in the southern colonies, the locals didn't have a Bible among them. They didn't want preachers or churches complicating their lives, but they did ask to have their children baptized, just in case. America, the spawn of England, reflected the mother country's religious diversity. After all, Isaac Newton practiced alchemy. Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton littered their creations with astrological references. A small percentage of especially clever or daring nobles had always been fascinated with druids, alchemy, astrology, and the occult. The middle class regularly produced some paragon of independent scholarship like Thomas Taylor, the devoted translator of ancient Greek philosophical and religious works, or theorists of grand spiritual unities like Godfrey Higgins, who wrote The Celtic Druids, to prove that the first Druids were Asians who had traveled all the way to Great Britain. Or General James Furlong, whose The Rivers of Life includes a room-sized fold-out map that attempts to graph a timeline of every religion and cult in history. These polyglot efforts to envision the entirety of the human experience of religion throughout history more than made up for their inaccuracy with their boundless and glorious flights of imagination. They can be enjoyed for their unintentional fictions as marvelous as the work of Borges, but yet true gems of fact and interesting insight into history coexist with the accidental fantasies. As for the poor, they had their cunning folk and fortune tellers to help them find the things and people they lost, to pick wedding dates, reverse a trend of bad luck, or most of all heal a sickness or injury. To America came nobles with libraries, free-thinking rogue scholars, and cunning men and women. Witchcraft was strictly prohibited, 
But occultism was a sport of intellectuals, and homespun cures and traditions weren't considered pagan. Almanacs filled with astrology and bits of occult information were popular back home and abroad. Books on the Kabbalah, writings of Hermes Trismegistus, the medical and metaphysical works of Paracelsus were circulated amongst well-read citizens in England and the American colonies. Not that the English and Americans were rejecting Christianity, they simply had a much wider definition of it than we do today. They didn't view the wisdom of the ancients as satanic, nor did they fear astrology or think experiments in communicating with spirits or foretelling the future punishable offenses against their faith. If anything, by broadening their understanding with the accumulated wisdom and time-honored practices of other cultures, many believed they were becoming better Christians. But America wasn't immediately fertile soil for alchemy, astrology, and other pagan preoccupations. The desire for religious conformity was a constant force to be reckoned with. Generation after generation of Americans facing this force moved deeper into the wilderness in search of freedom of belief. The American forests were not like the pagan woods of Europe and Great Britain. Everywhere haunted by half-forgotten sacred sites and magical natural settings. America was nothing but dangerous wilderness. Wandering in the wilds wasn't mysterious, it was terrifying, and superstition, like smallpox, was epidemic. Alchemists lived in a world where everything not only had a soul in life, but also the desire to evolve. The soul in a lowly chunk of lead was longing to become gold over time, but the alchemist could make it happen much faster. These ideas cultivated by the Neoplatonists, reanimated by Ficino and the Florentine Renaissance took full force in the writing and examples of Paracelsus, the Swiss genius who fathered what would become pharmaceutical science. He was the Luther of medicine, who coined the term elaster or star stuff to describe what matter and hence humans are made of. In his work, Sympathies and Antipathies, Attraction and Repulsion, the harmonies of correspondences became laws of spirituality and medicine alike. Paracelsus thought not only that to understand the book of nature, you must walk its pages with your feet, but also that the alchemist must be pure. All the vices must be confronted and conquered before the alchemist could expect to be blessed with success. So these early sciences had something of the medieval knight about them. Only the purest of heart could achieve the grail. Keep in mind that alchemy has been many things to many people, then as now. A hundred years later, a clear line would be drawn between the failures of alchemy and the successes of the new science of chemistry. Not long after, alchemy would find itself next to palm reading, astrology, and witchcraft as discredited but romantic art still capable of inspiring artists and occasionally sincere practitioners. General Ethan Allen Hitchcock would argue around the time of Lincoln that alchemy was all metaphor. The real art was spiritual transmutation, led by the desire to look deeply into the marvels of divine creation. This became a popular approach for writers, from Blavatsky to Manley P. Hall and beyond. Carl Jung took it even further as he proposed a collective unconscious and made of alchemy something like the arrival of pure religion, fresh from the unconscious. Iliad believed alchemy was based on the idea that all matter is living and ensouled. Base metals were not inert, lifeless elements. They were living and could therefore grow. 
Just as Jesus Christ can turn a soul from shadow to light, Iliad said the alchemists reasoned the right process could turn lead to gold. To perfect the self would lead to perfecting metals. Today, historians point out that the laboratory and the practice of chemistry were central to alchemy. In 17th century colonial America, alchemy was an intoxicating combination of real chemistry, experimental mysticism, and wealth speculation all at the same time. But the most important was chemistry. In fact, some who've been called alchemists had no interest in a spiritual practice at all. They were chemists before chemistry was a science. On three ships, the first Huguenots and probably the first alchemists in the New World arrived in 1564, 56 years before the Mayflower. They were weary of the never-ending war between Protestants and Catholics back home. Near what's now Jacksonville, Florida, with the help of a local tribe, they built Triangular Fort Caroline. They were probably the first Protestants to celebrate Thanksgiving in America, but Spain had already claimed Florida and most everything else in America. When the king of Spain heard about the Huguenot fort, he sent an army to erase them and replace them with the Spanish colony St. Augustine. The Huguenots courageously sailed out to attack the Spanish at sea, but a hurricane dashed their ships against the Florida coast. The Spanish quickly took the fort. Survivors were offered conversion to the Catholic faith. Almost every Huguenot refused, so they were killed. Only a few artisans whose skilled were needed and a couple of Catholics who'd lived among the Huguenots were spared. Less than 10 out of 300 of them survived. What was their great sin? Well, they were Protestants. They had their own symbol of the cross. They criticized the Catholic sacraments as an obsession with the death and the dead. In 1568, the great walled city of La Roche in France, the rebellious Huguenots celebrated victory. The Catholic Church, eager to absorb, annihilate, or at least expel them, had been defeated. The siege was over. The Reformation was the new world order, but not for long. In what became known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, Catholics killed thousands of Huguenots in Paris. Other massacres of thousands in other towns followed until La Rochelle was under siege again. By 1628, the fortress of the Huguenots was a smoking ruin and most of the inhabitants were killed. Killed by the armies of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. So much war had created an underground of green men, or leaf men. People who had gone mad. Who lived in caves. In the woods. Creeping through the leaves with matted hair like fur. People who had devolved into wildness. When the Huguenot leaders, or heretics as they had been judged, were marched away to their deaths, they were dressed up in greenery as objects of ridicule. The proud natural philosophers were reduced to the appearance of mentally ill pagan throwbacks. Many of the survivors fled to the New World, to workshops in the wilderness where they could pursue their arts without fear of Catholic persecution. The Huguenots, like so many after them, were refugees of war who came to America to start new lives. In New York and New Amsterdam, they became French craft workers, especially skilled furniture makers who sought security in their lives by applying in every way they could the principles of Paracelsus, as described in great detail by Neil Camille in his masterpiece of historical scholarship, The Thousand Page, Fortress of the Soul, Violence, Metaphysics, and Material Life in the Huguenots' New World, 1517-1520. 
to 1751. Among the earliest to arrive in America, the Huguenots brought with them the Paracelsian medicine and alchemical preoccupations. They wanted to live self-sufficiently, with freedom of belief, relying on their crafts to survive. Their politics and spirituality were local. They had learned from Bohème to think of life as the art of balancing God's wrath and love, called by some communities the masculine and the feminine. Until they were in proper ratio, our world would be fallen instead of a paradise. The books written by their spiritual leaders, who were often craftsmen, like the great Huguenot rustic ceramic artist Bernard Palissy, were carefully read by reformers in the colonies, including John Winthrop Jr. and Ben Franklin. The Huguenots assimilated quickly into American Protestant culture, becoming an important ingredient in the melting pot. Paul Revere was the descendant of Huguenots. The Rosicrucian contribution to culture is shrouded in secrecy and misinformation. The Rosicrucian manifesto called for, quote, universal and general reformation of the whole wide world, end quote. This idea of an invisible college of spiritually superior human beings benevolently conspiring for the good of humanity to this day catches up novices on the spiritual path, giving them visions of adepts materializing before them like Madame Blavatsky's telepathic masters. On one hand, scholars like Francis Yates have argued persuasively that a genuine Rosicrucian movement existed, including a variety of secret societies with shared goals, more recently, most scholars have taken the position that the Rosicrucians were more likely a literary movement, but based on the experimental practice of alchemy as a quest for breakthroughs in medicine, metallurgy, and what would later become chemistry. Telescopes and alembics were holier than sacred relics to these men and women. And women were, in the chemistry labs, mothers, wives a book that no one's been able to find but was referenced by Charles Hecklethorne in his dated but once seminal secret societies of all ages and countries was titled Sisters of the Rosy Cross, or Short Discovery of These Ladies and What Religion, Knowledge, and Divine Natural Things, Trades, Arts, and Medicine, copyright 1620. The Rosicrucians had announced their initial publications that they would stay invisible for 100 years but interested parties should publicly declare themselves, and if worthy, they would be asked to join the order. This invitation triggered a wave of publications, not only from volunteers wishing to be chosen, but also from critics attacking the Rosicrucian order and apologists defending it, though they were not actually members of it. The most enthusiastic seekers traveled, following the idea of Paracelsus, they sold their books, their possessions, and their estates, and traveled to every mountain, valley, desert, lake, and forest, where they were to seek understanding about every plant and animal they encountered. They were to collect recipes from locals and learn the lore of cures. Only then were they ready to buy a furnace and work with the fire that would help them resolve, dissolve, and coagulate, taking matter apart, purifying it, discovering hidden properties. And if they were devoted enough and pure of heart, they would be blessed by the divine with cures and other boons for humanity. Rosicrucianism was a cultural flowering, both rational and irrational, that arose partly around the misinterpretation of King James of England giving his daughter Elizabeth in marriage to Frederick, the King of Bohemia. Reformers saw the marriage as an alliance between England and the various German kingdoms against the Catholic Church, which was patiently planning to reclaim dominion over Northern Europe and Great Britain. 
a prince and princess who fell in love at first sight, the royal couple captured the public's imagination. Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream was performed for their wedding. All the best minds of science and theater surrounded them. Back home, Frederick built gardens with mechanical statues that whistled for the amusement of his bride, but to the horror of local Catholics who dubbed the garden the gate to hell. The situation was complicated by the death of Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales, the heir to the English throne. Elizabeth's older brother was the passionate Protestant who thought his father a particular old fogey. Henry was bright, cultured, an athlete, the very incarnation of what the people hoped a king would be, and he was eager to make war on the Catholic powers. Like his beautiful sister, he seemed less a steward than a tutor. Tragically, a swim in the polluted Thames infected him with typhoid fever. Just before the wedding of his little sister to the German prince, who could have united Germany to join England in an alliance strong enough to resist even Rome, Prince Henry died. The wedding festivities continued, but despite the best efforts of Shakespeare and the dazzling theatrical interventions of Inigo Jones, melancholy pervaded the proceedings. Still, the newlyweds were in love as they journeyed to their fate. Bohemia was already a symbol of the avant-garde and offbeat, thanks to the alchemical court of Emperor Rudolf II. Reformers, alchemists, astrologers, and inventors like Jones, Paracelsian doctors, mystics of every stripe, all assembled at the court of Bohemia, where the royal alchemical couple were believed to be presiding over the dawn of a new world order. But not for long. Frederick made the mistake of claiming the job of emperor when it was unwisely dangled before him by his rash allies who were foolishly counting on James. James didn't like war. His decision not to support his own daughter was very unpopular with the lords and with the people of England who loved their beautiful golden-haired princess. They had hoped she would be a second coming of Queen Elizabeth. But without his father-in-law's help, Frederick lost his credibility in the eyes of the German allies who left him to the tender mercies of Pope's imperial army. In 1620, Bohemia was burned, pillaged, and left to the plague. Protestants' officials were publicly executed, and their lands and possessions were given to loyal Catholics. But what of all these reformers in science and education, and the writers promoting imminent utopias? What of the secret societies devoted to the grand project of creating a culture where the best resources could be focused on research colleges instead of war between the Christians? What of the alchemists and their dreams of new sciences, of health and wealth, with their dream of Rosicrucian Europe shattered, where could they turn their attention? Europe, they knew, would be embroiled in war. America beckoned, and authors from Sir Francis Bacon to obscure Rosicrucian apologists began enshrining their visions in the new world. Even if they were as loose and unofficial a brand as the beat poets of the 1950s, these alchemists and pseudo-Rosicrucians stamped their image indelibly on America. Bacon himself has been often accused of being the leader of the Rosicrucians. Thanks to Manley P. Hall's guidance in his collection, I encountered two examples of the mysterious hints that have been inspired Bacon and the Rosicrucian scholars. The first is a copy of the 1660 edition of The Anatomy of Melancholy. On page 62 of the introduction, a curious footnote reads, quote, Joe, Valent, Andre, Lord, Veralum, end quote. 
Andre was the reputed author of the Fama and the Chemical Marriage, the books that sparked the Rosicrucian Revolution. Francis Bacon was the first and only Lord Verulam of that time. The other hint comes from Mathematical Magic, a book by John Wilkins, a friend of Francis Bacon. On page 237 of the edition published in 1680, wherever burning lamps are discussed, Wilkins makes this provocative statement, quote, Such a lamp is likewise related to be seen in the sepulchre of Francis Rosacross, as is largely expressed in the confession of that fraternity, end quote. Wilkins equates Francis Rosacross to Christian Rosenkreutz, legendary founder of the Rosicrucians. Were these errors, or subtle hints at a deeper involvement by Bacon in Rosicrucian matters? Since Rosicrucians would never talk about being Rosicrucians, the absence of evidence in Bacon's own writing offers no obstacle to the enthusiastic. Yet Bacon's own writing certainly shared most of the Rosicrucian goals. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. My selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, discussion, and consciousness expansion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors or creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social media and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die. Ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? Night-night, bitch. <laughs>